This is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. Being a creative in business is not for the faint of heart. It is overwhelming. There's just so much coming at us all the time. But it's not just the things that are coming at us. We're supposed to collect all these things, catch all these things, all the things that we read and we see and we're inspired by, and take it in, digest it, and then have it inform the stuff that we're making so much so that people that we're trying to influence will buy it or take advantage of it or even give their intention toward it. But this doesn't happen automatic. In fact, if you're like me, it's overwhelming to think of all the different places that we consume and take in the idea of like capturing and organizing that in such a way that we can then put it in place someplace else. It just feels overwhelming, especially when you add just the everydayness of life, just the domestic realities that we all carry. Well, my guest today is Tiago Forte, and he is the author of Building a Second Brain. Building a Second Brain, or BASB, is one of the more profound frameworks I've come across in the last 10 years. If you are a fan of getting things done by David Allen, that kind of systematic approach to productivity, it takes that mindset but applies it directly to creativity in a far more accessible way than even GTD does. It works for folks who are just poking around with it, as well as folks who want to build a whole second brain from it. And I promise at the end of this conversation, not only will you be inspired, you'll be empowered to capture more of the great inputs that are coming your way and put them to work for you and your business. It's a funny phenomenon when other people interact with your work so much that it's tempting to feel like, oh, I know you, but of course you don't know me in that kind of a context. But when the many are interacting with the one, that's often how it plays out. I'm guessing that's been true for you for a while, but even more so with the book launch. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've bared my soul. I've you know, divulged all sorts of very personal stories and details. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no so kidding. You probably do know me fairly well, but uh, it sounds like we can equalize that in this conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well, first of all, welcome to Converge. This is a podcast around the business of creativity. So kind of where creativity and making something out of what you make uh, come together. And our audience are a group of people who they're everything from solopreneurs all the way through to folks who are really trying to contribute to a bigger project than themselves, but they're doing it in a way that harnesses their creativity and puts it to work. And I, I have to say, as somebody who's kind of evolved with the productivity industry over my life and career, I remember in high school, I was one of those guys who would like put eat lunch in my day timer in high school. Nice. Like I was just kind of geeky and then kind of rode that train, eventually found my way to things like Franklin Planners and then the glory that is David Allen and getting things done. And in a sense, that was this really unlocking moment of seeing things like context and that I could go through life with this theoretical, at least mine, like water, where I had somewhere to put stuff and then out of that experience, be able to kind of execute on it. But that was all in the productivity space. I was a photographer for many years, so I could use other tools like you know Lightroom and different things for not just text-based stuff. But when I came across building a second brain, what I was so struck by, Tiago, is this, you're not just doing this for productivity's sake, you're really trying to unleash creativity 
mm-hmm. in a way that is transformative for, for many of us. So I'm wondering if you could just share a little of your origin story. I, I know it came from out of your own sense of fighting for your life, really, and how that kind of necessity created this context that you've built. But share a little bit of that and also how far off am I on this, this musing around this creativity unleashing, not just productivity? I'd just love to hear you talk. I think that's, that's absolutely the case. And actually, I don't usually talk about this part of my story, but, but now that you said that, it kind of reminds me, all going up through school from a very young age, you know, there's these two pathways. Sometimes it's called like the math and science, you know, like your teachers, your parents, the school administrators, everyone's trying to determine and, and hoping that you're in at least one of them, right? The math and science nerds or the arts, humanities, theater, music nerds. <laughs> just don't get caught in the middle. You just don't want to get caught in the middle. But yes, yes. Well, I think that's what happened to me because I was just so not a part of it, either of those, you know? Mm, okay. I had a pretty kind of OCD nerdy mind and I'm very analytical, but I was never good at math. I just, mm. my brain doesn't hold on to numbers. It just never did that. And so I was sort of labeled early on as not good at math and labeled myself as not good at math. Never took advanced math all through school. So I came from a a family of artists. My dad is a lifelong painter. My mom is a musician. My brother is a dancer. I was the the black sheep because I had no obvious creative skill. And I, I played the piano a little bit, not especially good at it. Definitely not good at dancing. Definitely not good at art or drawing. And so my, most of my life, I was just like, wow, I'm just this like nobody with no special skill, no special talent. Mm-hmm. It's almost like society is designed that way. You know, like, are you left brain? Are you right brain? Are you an engineer type or an mm-hmm. artist type? And we're just routed down these paths. But to, to speak to what you said earlier, I think those paths are now converging. Mm-hmm. You know, where software architects now have to be completely in touch with their creative, intuitive side. And on the other side, you know, let's say you're a painter. Well, you have to be good at business. You have to have a website. You know, my dad is, is the most creative person I've ever met, has what he calls his strategies. He has these routines, these rules that he follows so religiously. And when I ask him, why do you follow them so rigorously? He's like, do you know what it's like to raise four kids in California on an artist's salary? <laughs> it's a necessity. It, it breeds invention. No question about it. Yeah. So talk a little bit about how you stumbled into into your system. Will you share with the audience how you found your way? Yeah, I think this is, it's kind of a continuation of the same story. It's like, I remember this one moment I, uh, I graduated from college and I studied like business again, just like so boring. And I had this moment right as I was graduating, it was this real moment of truth where I just looked in the mirror and I just realized, Tiago, you are not special. Your parents always told you you were special, your teachers, that's I grew up in that generation, you know, project self-esteem. We were told we were special. And I just looked at my resume and I looked at my grades and I looked at everything and I was like, you are not, there's nothing special about you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I started, you know, coming up against challenges as I became an adult, the challenges of getting my first jobs, the challenges of my health condition, which I talk about extensively in the book Mm -hmm. and then challenges like applying to the Peace Corps, which was a lifelong dream that I had the challenges of moving abroad and living abroad, you know, just like adulting, like adulting challenges. Mm. And I started to realize, wait a minute, these challenges are creative challenges. Mm. There's no multiple choice question. There's no formula here. It's just, 
I I get to bring all of my self and my dreams and my desires and different kinds of solutions and approaches all in this creative mix that might be unlike what anyone else would create. And I, I basically found my creative medium, which is like practical problem solving in the real world, I would say. And my second brain was the, the linchpin of that. It was a, a concrete place, like a concrete medium for me to save my own thoughts and goals, external advice, external ideas from books. I voraciously read self-improvement books, business books, marketing books, all these books. Mm. And my second brain became this like creative cauldron of ready-made solutions that I used to, you know, confront all those challenges that I, that I mentioned successfully. And eventually after some years, start a business and a blog and start to teach a course and write a book that now somehow became my career. My some of my own path, I, I can relate to a lot of what you're describing. I mean, I'm older than you, but I felt that sense of desire to be special, uh, the supposed to be, and yet on a graph, I'm pretty average. And I found so much solace in folks like like someone in my life that's played a significant formational role in my life is a guy, a guy we both know, Seth Godin. And when I first kind of got exposed to Seth professionally through his, you know, his reading, his blog and his books, it was like this invitation to not overthink the specialness. Um, there was a sense of like, you're probably not as special as you think you are, even if you think you're special and yeah. the sense of, and you still need to be on the hook for life to find a way to create. And, and even his, I was in my early days, I found myself looking for shortcuts. How can I find a quicker path to what Uber success appeared to be? And really, it was a kind of a probably a five or 10 year enrollment in this idea of like, actually, the quickest way is probably the slow way, kind of drip, 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 one foot in front of the other. And yet, like you, I found myself ferociously intaking, but not, not shipping, not getting things out to market out of fear, out of insecurity. You know, I, I made some kind of leaps and thresholds in different moments and writing books and running, you know, a little business and providing for my family in California. I can relate to your dad <laughs> in that regard. But I I did have this sense of gosh, I'm intaking so much yet it, all of the stuff I'm taking in is is spread out so far and wide. Mm-hmm. Whether it be the latest app or a book or an audiobook or a, you know, wherever it was all, it was just everywhere and I was trying to carry it all. And then I would think of guys like David Allen who would say, "By the way, the mind is not the greatest filing cabinet for everything." at least not in the way that I was trying to use it. And then I stumbled on what you were describing. And and candidly, when I first came across uh, Building Second Brain, I was so moved by it. I was kind of like angry. Like, why didn't I have access to this <laughs> a couple of decades ago? But for folks who are new to the idea, can you explain in broad strokes, Building a Second Brain and, and really what its purpose is when you think about, but again, your uber successful course, but now that it's in hardback and more and more people will get access to it, what are they getting exposed to precisely? I explain it differently depending on the situation, but I would say a second brain is simply a trusted place outside of your head where you save the information and the ideas and the insights that are most important to you. The ones that are not just a momentary, you know, spark fluttering through your head, but that you have decided are worth revisiting, worth documenting, worth implementing, worth trying, worth applying to something in your life that you're trying to change or improve or create. And I say trusted place because it can be a physical place. 
it can be a filing cabinet if you want. It can be a sure. paper notebook. It can be software. It can be dozens of different kinds of software programs. People who take my course have used upwards of 30 or 40 different apps for this, mm. which mm. is the, sort of the proof that it is a, it is a philosophy. It is a methodology that is platform agnostic, which is critical. Because the one huge downfall of technology is it's always constantly changing. Mm. Apps come and go, they get acquired, they shut down, they increase their price, they make some wrong decisions. I mean, you have to have a system that maybe is manifested in software, but that also stands apart. It is, it, it, it's ex- expands beyond any one particular tool in order to have that trust component. <laughs> Again, I come back to this mind like water idea of David Allen's where it doesn't feel like a heavy burden to carry. Once you set up your second brain, it doesn't feel like you're carrying a lot of burden. It's just more like you're capturing ideas kind of with increasing skill and elegance. And then it's going into a thing. And then you have kind of disciplined kind of moments to organize things. And and really it's pre-organized because it's kind of going in the right slots. And then once it's in the slots, then I get to get into it and actually deepen my understanding of things and own my notes. And then I get to kind of put them to, to market. Can you just reflect a little bit more of how you get to that place of trust with your system? Yeah. Uh, Cause I think a lot of folks, when they first get exposed, like one of my questions at the end of this interview, I hope we get to is how do you enroll other people in it? I have four kids. I would love for them to take this on, but the, I'm famous in our family for being kind of geeky and they're not. And there's a sense in which, for us to trust it, it could be overwhelming if it if it really gets too complex. So talk a little bit about how do you slowly get your way into this, wade your way into the water so that trust gets built with this thing you're creating? Trust is the ultimate test because it can't be faked. You know, it can't be faked. There's something in your subconscious that is so wise that knows when you write something down, it knows with almost mm-hmm. mathematical accuracy the, mm-hmm. the chances that that will ever be found again, right? You can say, oh, no, you know, search is great, and I'm going to save it in this one centralized place. That subconscious voice knows. And if it, if it's that percentage, you know, uh, chance of retrieval is not high enough, it's going to keep it up here. Mm-hmm. And the open loop is going to keep running. It's going to keep reminding you again and again and again. You know it's it actually trusts that place where when you write it down, it actually quiets the mind. This thing actually turns off. That's interesting. So, so before you go there, so is that a, is that a an indicator that you're moving in the right direction when you find yourself relaxing, or that you said turning off? Say more about that. I want to understand that part. It's the only real measure. Mm-hmm. You know, like think about. I have in the book. There's three kind of stages people move through: remember, connect, and create. Mm-hmm. And often, you know, the, the marketing of these different software programs are like, oh, connect your ideas and create your knowledge graph. Or like create new things and create content. But that first stage, it's like, it's like I always tell people, you have no time. You think you don't have time, you have way less time than you even realize. Like, mm-hmm. like if you just break down, like how many years of our lives do we have a career? In that career, how many do we actually have a career, like work that we control within that mm-hmm. time? How many hours a day are just sleeping, eating, and maintaining yourself? Mm. within those hours like you you break it down and we're, we're really talking about like three to five percent of our lives mm. there's like three to f- maybe 15 percent if you're very privileged is like mm. discretionary you actually get to choose yeah. you can't even consider new behaviors to adopt or new systems to adopt until you clear some space like it's kind of mm. like when you're cleaning your house 
you know, first you have to, it's like your house can be so messy that you can't clean it. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're paralyzed. You're just paralyzed. You're totally paralyzed. You have to create a free space, which then becomes the staging area to mm. organize things, which then can be put back. Mm. But when it comes to our first brain up here, our bandwidth is so over capacity that we just need to like offload things. We need to get things out of the building before we can even think straight. Mm. Uh, and that's why the first element of trust is so simple. It's just, can I write something down and know that I will see it again when appropriate on a reasonable timescale? Like that's like 70% of a second brain right there. And most people mm. never even get there. So much of the book is just, you know, there's tactical, practical, really helpful pieces. And you've been very generous in how you kind of laid it out with acronyms. We'll talk about some of those core concepts in a minute. But it's near the end of the book where you talk about divergence and convergence. And I'm wondering just on a macro level, could you just talk a little bit about that distinction from a creativity perspective? And then we'll talk about code and how that fits or CODE and how that fits into less than greater than kind of symbol. Yes. Yeah. Happy to. So, so, okay. So when I talk about a second brain, people think of a, like a thing, like an object, you know, when I say system, you imagine like a, almost like a machine, like a little device worrying, like like a, like a phone or something. Yeah. Yes. Like a thing, which it is, it is a, it's important that is, it is a discrete concrete centralized thing. Outside of us, outside of us. Outside of us, yes, yes. It's not just a concept, right? It's not just, oh, my second brain, yeah, it's like something that I think about. No, 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 it is an actual, like, like if you died, people should be able to access it. (laughs) Well, I thought about that. Like, when I was reading it, I was like, he's talking about, like, a balance sheet asset. Yes. Like, you're building an asset outside of your body. Yes, it's it's an archive. It's a treasury. It is a... It is huh. a compounding knowledge investment. It's exactly how I think of it. It is on the balance sheet along with any other financial asset. Fascinating. Okay, keep going. It is a thing, but it's it's more importantly a process. Hmm. Because apart from the behaviors that you use to interact with it, it has no value or purpose, right? If you just have this, you know, black hole where you just stuff things and there's no further interaction, you never see it again, you never get reminded of it, then there's no point. And so code, C-O-D-E, is really my attempt at describing this process, which is the creative process. Like, it's funny, you always hear artists, you know, artists and musicians talk about their creative process, you know, oh, well, that's part of my process. And I was always just like, well, what what can you lay out that process? Like, what does it look like? What is the beginning, middle and end? I want some details here. (laughs) Mm. Mm. Code just jumped out at me from studying really the history. I would study artists, philosophers, poets, writers from the past. And just try to identify what are the essential steps. There's many optional steps, but what are the essential steps? And I, I still remember the day where I was writing down different variations, and, th- and then I wrote capture, organize, distill, and express, and it happened to spell code. Hmm. And I was like, "Whoa, this is That's like the a dream metaphysical moment here." Like I didn't, <laughs> it wasn't me force fitting, you know, the the acronym. Yeah. Well, and that happens a couple of times in your book. Like I think of code, I think of IP. Paris, not quite as much, although it feels like a parachute to me sometimes, but um, uh, keep going. I don't want to distract, but I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I think that those serendipitous moments where it feels providential, like we, we all needed it. I, th- I do think you're blessing people as you got blessed in that moment. That's really cool. We'll be right back after this short break. 
The world of work has changed forever. And at Tell Me Your Dreams, we spend all of our energy trying to help employees love their job. But this is no easy task, especially given the level of responsibility that individuals feel to not only work from home, but to sometimes feel like they're living at work. And as everything has become more complex, you've also heard some conversations I've had consistently with my friend Ty Fujimura at Cantilever. And this is something that I know is core to what you guys do, Ty. You care deeply about your people and you also care deeply about doing great work. Can you talk a little bit about why it is that virtually everyone who works at your company, virtually, I would add, <laughs> they love their job. How is it? How have you navigated remote work in a way where people just love going to work? Most of the working world, as you said, hasn't really adapted yet to the realities of the way that people want to work nowadays. And a lot of that just comes down to the expectations that companies put on people. And those expectations have to be different in a world where remote work is normative and where people's schedules are so complex. We have more going on than ever, especially if you're a parent or you have a side hustle or you're balancing multiple jobs or you're taking care of an aging parent yourself. There's so much for you to handle within your day. At Cantilever, we focus on setting things up so that our people have the maximum amount of flexibility in their schedules. We have a expectation of 35 hours a week as constituting full time. And so we never want to become one of these shops where if you're not spending 50, 60, 70 hours a week at your job, you're not considered valuable. Because what that does is it incentivizes quantity over quality. It makes people burn out. It makes people leave. We want to be a place where people want to stay their whole careers, being able to do their very, very best work because they've been given the tools to perform their job excellently in a constrained amount of time that fits in with the rest of their life. If this sounds attractive to you, friends, and you want to find out more, especially if this work around strategy and design and really creating hospitality on the internet, if that sounds like your jam, go to cantilever.co forward slash careers and start a conversation. I wonder what could open up for you. I, I really think it's that, that idea that, you know, new ideas emerge, they have their own will, they have their own, like, their own destiny, and you're just like a vehicle for that. Mm -hmm. Code is just the four essential steps of the creative, pro the, the universal creative process. I see them in every creative medium across all time, mm. which is, I think the reason that's powerful is like, you know, other skilled professions, they know what are the, the discrete activities that they do. Right. Like my brother's in construction and he'll come in and to a job and say, okay, am I doing, am I drywalling? You know, am I framing? Am I doing details? Like he has probably only five to 10 specific things he does. And that is so clarifying because he can, tells him which tools to bring, tells him how much time he needs, tells him who else he needs on the job, tells him what he's going to charge, all these things. But as knowledge workers, which I also like to believe is a skilled profession, we don't have that. You know, what are the five to 10 modes, activities that we find ourselves in? Mostly we just sit down at a computer and just sort of muddle around for a few hours and just randomly click on things and react to whatever's in our email in a, in a way that's totally unsystematic, which means it can't be approved. It can't be made more intentional. It can't be made more strategic. It's just this, 
ambiguous cloud of stuff that we're doing. So code is that. These are the four things that we do as knowledge workers. But then on a day-to-day level, four is even four is too many, right? When I sit down, it's actually too complicated for me to say, okay, am I going to be capturing, organizing, distilling, expressing? And when I'm working on a specific project, which is what I'm actually doing, I'm often cycling between those really fast, hmm. right? It's not like, let me spend one hour on each of these. No, it's like every 30 seconds to one minute, I might be switching back and forth. Fast code. Are you conscious of that when that's happening? Or is it more just you, you can see it in retrospect? I think it's, it's only semi-conscious. You know, think about doing a Google search, you know, and then finding a result, copying a link. Okay, that's capture. Then you go over to the Google Doc that you're writing, insert it. That's kind of like organize. Mm-hmm. Then you like write a sentence after that link saying what it is. That's distill. And then you hit share, put in someone's email and hit share. You just went through code in about 30 seconds. Mm. <laughs> wow. Well, that even that's resourceful, I think, for people to kind of have a meta view of every time they are sharing something any in any context. It, it went through those those stages to get to somebody else, but in many cases, because there's not even a half thought to it, it probably underperforms compared to what it could do. Is that a fair assertion? So, first of all, I think it's important. A lot of my work is about recognizing the innate intelligence that our little casual, informal, subconscious habits have. I'm not about imposing this external. In fact, a lot of what people have to unlearn with building a second brain Mm. is they have to unlearn the approach to note-taking and learning that they learn in school, which is there's always this imposing external authority telling you what is important. Is it going to be on the test? That's the question. Not what is going to enrich my life, what is going to lead me towards the life I want to lead? What is going to give me richer relationships? No. What's on the test? <laughs> so we're recognizing the innate intelligence, but it's what you said. Recognizing it, right? Seeing what we're doing and why. Which once you understand the principle behind it, then you can, and, and, and have a, a set of principles, then you can actually consciously choose the principle that you want to operate at any given time. Mm. You can make it more systematic. You can iterate on it. You can, you can batch process. This is where it really starts to get powerful is instead of doing 10 seconds on each one, what if you just did bigger batches? You did 20 or 30 minutes of capturing, read a book and make highlights. You did 20 or 30 minutes of organizing, like increase the batches, which gains tremendous efficiency and, and leverage in, in the time that you're spending, which is really what this is all about. Increasing mm. the return on attention, the return on investment of the precious attention that you're spending. The first half of code, so capture and organize, is very different than the back half of code, which is distill and express. Talk a little bit about those two kind of, because I think that's another thing that when people raise their consciousness to it, it explains a lot as to where they get stalled and stuck and why. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so you're right. The first half is divergence. You are expanding the range of possibilities, right? You are increasing the scope of the details you're tracking, the information you're consuming, the options that you are evaluating. What that looks like concretely is, is capture organize. You know, you're reading books and saving excerpts. You're listening to podcasts and uh, noting down quotes. You are taking classes and saving, you know, notes on the takeaways. All that has a cost, right? Mm-hmm which is why you don't want to burden this fragile biological brain with that cost. You want to externalize it and incur that, you know, have, have software handle that load hmm. and also capture and organize. One more thing I'll say about that is it has to be done in the moment, right? You can't 
you know, say, oh, I want to I wanna do a piece of writing. You can't retroactively go back and capture all the sources and influences that you w- would have wanted. That has to already be done. By the time you sit yeah. down to create something, it's too late. You don't have time. That's not the time to do research and to open up all these browser tabs and to diverge. That's the time to create. Mm. That has to be done in advance, capture and organize. But then distill and express, which are convergent, it's about eliminating options. It's about reducing the scope of information. It's about arriving at a conclusion. Mm. Those not only cannot be done in advance, they shouldn't be done in advance because you don't even know the problem you're trying to solve or the thing you're trying to create. In mm. fact, distill and express should be done as little as possible, as late as possible. They should be done just in time. You're kind of blowing my mind. Uh, this is <laughs> this notion of automating the, the capture and organize piece. Talk a little bit about para because i think that's a helpful frame i know it's very popular that's some people just latch on to para and don't really do the rest of it if that's the organizing kind of framing can you talk about para yeah so para is sort of the gateway to it all Hmm. uh para is like you said the most by far the most popular single kind of teaching that i have on my blog is by far the most popular blog post it's kind of how people get started and like you said many people never go beyond that which i say is perfect you know, if you don't need 25 tools in your toolkit and you're like me, you only need like a hammer and a screwdriver, basically. <laughs> stick with those. Save your money. Yeah. And your yeah. Para is is really addressing what is often the kind of person that is already sort of aware of this stuff, their immediate problem, which is I have a ton of random files and documents in my documents folder, or I have a ton of notes in my notes inbox or something along those lines. They've accumulated stuff. They've captured it. And they're just asking, how do I organize this? Maybe they're not interested in writing. Maybe they're, they're not interested in like radically transforming their creativity and productivity. They just have this repository of stuff that needs to be organized. And that's what Para does. And and for folks at home, Para is projects, areas, resources, and archives or cold yes. storage. Yes. One The big ep- epiphany for me was the distinction between, and I'm sure this is common, but uh, projects and areas. Everything was a project for me. Being a dad was a project in the same way that getting ready to remodel our garage is a project. Yeah. And, and yeah. so even if you can just help us with that distinction, because I think archives people get like, oh, I get to get rid of it and it's, I can access it later. And resources are like, they're not really things that I need right now, but they're interesting to me. But talk about projects and areas as a distinction. Yeah, you know, this really comes from David Allen. David Allen made this Hmm. distinction decades ago. And it continues to be, it still blows my mind what a powerful distinction it is. And it's so simple. It's It can really be boiled down to projects end and areas don't. Projects Hmm. uh, have a beginning and an end, and then they're done. You check them off, you cross them off. Areas of responsibility are aspects of your life, hats that you wear, that don't have any particular end date, they go on forever. So yeah, being a dad, you know, I'm also a dad. It has projects within it, you know, remodel the nursery. Right now I have a project, find and sign up our son for swimming lessons. Definitely a project, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when I, you know, when that those things are done, I'm not finished being a father. I don't, I, I'm never basically for the rest of my life going to cross that off as if it's finished. Mm-hmm. It is indefinite, it goes on forever. And there's different rules for both. It's funny, as you were, my own cross-pollinating, I'm thinking about the distinction between finite games and infinite games. Simon Sinek writes about this, but so do others. In fact, there's a scholar at NYU who wrote about it before, Simon, that I found really resourceful. But it feels like projects are finite games, 
and areas are infinite games. Is that a fair alignment? Exactly. Yeah. That's the, for anyone who wants the real fault, like the philosophy behind that distinction, that's exactly what it is. Finite games and infinite games. Neither one is better. Sometimes people right. think infinite games are better. They're not. You need both. You mm. need wins. You need clear cut victories and they're not enough. You also mm-hmm. need infinite games. Oh, it's so helpful. Okay. So I want to round towards home and honor your time. I, I'm, I'm in, I, I'm on board. I think <laughs> folks who are listening are in and yet, and you, maybe you've already answered this a little bit with just saying, you know, give them para or something, but how do you enroll the skeptic? How do you enroll the person who's like, dude, I'm, if I can find my keys, I'm in good shape, like let alone yeah. write something down on a piece of paper, but you realize they're super creative and it's just not getting harnessed. Like they're leaking all this great stuff. And I think I'm a teacher at art. I just want, I want to enroll people in good things. How do you enroll your friends and family in these ideas? Yeah, it's, this is an amazing question. I'd like to do some writing on this because yeah, it's, there's this funny thing where probably many of the people that are most naturally inclined to this are also the ones that don't need it that much, hmm. right? Like if you've put half a second of thought into organizing or tried it at all, you're probably like in the top 10% or 5% of most organized people. It's the, the the great irony of all self-improvement, right? Is the people that would most benefit are probably just not interested. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. It's true. Yeah. So a few things that come to mind, one is modeling it, you know, in my, my studies of behavior change, which is really what I'm most interested in. Uh, there's just nothing like modeling. That's fundamentally how people learn is not by being taught. It is by seeing people they admire, who they want to be like who they resonate with and just copying them, mimicking them. Yeah. I had, a, I had a mentor once call it monkey see monkey do. Yes. That's my, that's great. What else? I think another one is there's this thing with behavior change where it's really powerful to just acknowledge what's already working, right? If you come in with, this is all bad, this is all wrong. Everything needs to be changed. People are not very receptive to that. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, as one example, you know, so much of this process is code is, is an iterative process. It's not just one time. So you, you express, you share something and then you collect feedback, that feedback you write down and becomes the new capture input. And you, you know, you go around and around. And so my, my wife, Lauren, she always has told me, you know, I'm, I, my mind works in completely different ways. I have nothing to do with this. I have no interest. But then I started using her as an example in my course because she does the same process through conversation. Hmm. This is what I noticed. She'll like something will happen, you know, like, I don't know, someone yells at her in the parking lot in the supermarket. She'll tell the story to me and it's this kind of long convoluted story. And then I'll hear her the next day telling a slightly more succinct version to her mom. And then the next day, a slightly more distilled version to her sisters. And then eventually it will reach her friends. And then eventually where it ends up is we're at a party with strangers. And my wife is a huge extrovert. And I noticed this, this thing that extroverts do, which is they always have a story. They always have a joke. They always have a, it's like bits, like a comedian, you know? And I I started noticing that she would use those stories, but by this time they were distilled down to such an entertaining, funny thing. Mm -hmm. And it made me realize, oh my gosh, she's doing the whole iterative process, but just using other people's minds instead Mm -hmm. of a note-taking app. Mm. And now she's into oh. it. Now she's like, yeah, I'm an expert. I do it this way. And here's this strategy <laughs> and here's this technique without ever touching software. <laughs> oh, that's so good. That is so good. Last question. You are now kind of in this mode of you, you've had so many folks go through the course and 
really built this like underground cult of people who care a lot about this. And now they're all coming up above ground, right? Uh, there's <laughs> folks that are, uh, I mean, I mean, the book is out, it's exploding. The, the folks that influenced you as, and how it's, I mean, literally it's so meta, like the way that you have, it's, it's all coming out in, in yeah. this framing and, and uh, we're getting to know you in the process. And for folks that are getting exposed to this idea and they want to, they kind of want their life to matter. They, they just want to get more out of life. It's not about they're all going to be authors or they're all going to be software engineers or they're all going to be like whatever, they're celebrity, whatever, Taylor Swift, you know. Um, but the everyday person, what do you say? You're having coffee with somebody. They're not going to read the book. They're not going to, or maybe they will, I don't know. But like at the front, the front end of the conversation, what's your first way to tease curiosity to invite people in just a little further. How, how do you have coffee with that person? What, what does that conversation look like? And I'll give you the last word and we'll, we'll end there. Yeah, this is what I would do is I wouldn't even necessarily frame it as like building a second brain. To some people that's like inspiring and monumentous. I would just say, look, there's these digital note-taking. This is why when I use the term digital note-taking, like everyone knows note-taking and digital, you know, everything's digital. It's like very approachable. And here's what I would do is pick a project that they're already working toward, that they're already thinking about. It's, it's funny. It's like most, most people, it's, it's sort of like the status quo is stable, right? They're kind of fine with their relationship to information. It's not perfect, but it's also not a crisis. They're just sort of there. But then this new element will arise, sometimes almost kind of from the outside, like a new kid. Or sometimes unexpectedly, like they get offered a promotion or they're trying to start a business or a side gig or they're trying to start a local business or a nonprofit. Like there's some new thing they're trying to add to their life. And it's sort of like a building adding a new floor. You can't just keep adding floors. You need to reinforce the foundation. Mm-hmm. And so if you can find something like that, often it's just a dream. It's a desire. Oh, yeah, I've been, for years I've been wanting to, you know, write a book or start a cupcake shop or something like that. If you can present digital note-taking as a pathway to that, not as an end in itself, not as a nerd hobby, but as a stepping stone that will make the, that will put their dream within reach. This was episode 11, season six of the Business of Creativity podcast. Converge is made possible thanks to cantilever.co and tellmeyourdreams.com. For all our past evergreen episodes with guests like Seth Godin, James Clear, Ann Handley, Ryan Holiday, Jazz Ampafar, Donald Miller, Mike Michalowicz, Sarah Green Carmichael, Brad Montague, Kevin Kelly, Todd Henry, Scott Stratton, Chase Reeves, Gretchen Rubin, Chris Gillibo, Starley Kine, and more, go to ConvergePodcast.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. See you next time. Ironic Media Production. Visit us at ironickmedia.com.